0: and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. Today, we're going to be listening to a conversation with James Elroy and Tom Lutz that was recorded at Brian Kern and Kevin McClellan's beautiful house. Yeah, it's a really beautiful house.
1: The house actually has a name. I forget the name, but it was built in the 1910s, and it's beautifully restored by Brian into its original splendor. And so, it's beautiful old LA house. I don't know anything about architecture aside from um, just general aesthetic appreciation. So I can't even tell you. <laughs> you don't what know the what style? style? No, really? No, maybe Craftsman. No, no Tudor. Tudor. I have no idea. Okay, Elizabethan. It has ruffles (laughs) around the neck. Um, I I don't know. But it's very nice. So we held this evening to celebrate James Elroy's latest book, which is called This Storm. And of course, James Elroy is most famous for his L.A. Quartet, which is the the Black Dahlia, the Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz. And that was recently released as part of the Everyman's Library Classic Series. And as listeners were here, James is a very, very fun reader of his own work, and a very fun person to listen to.
0: Have you read these books, Kate? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, especially because I really love L.A. literature, but I have yet to go on my Elroy journey. The summertime could be a good time to go on an Elroy journey. I could, yeah. I've always been very curious about his book, My Dark Places, which is his own personal story of his, his mother's murder. Yeah.
1: Maybe that would be a good way to, to start. I think that does sound like a good way to start. Happy happy way to start. Yeah. Or you can start by listening to this interview between Tom and James. Hmm. Okay. Okay, let's do it. So the next voices you'll be hearing will be Tom Lutz, who's the editor-in-chief of the Review of books, and then James Elroy himself doing a reading from This Storm, which is his latest novel.
2: Thanks, everyone, for coming. I'm not going to do a formal introduction to James Elroy because I think that would be a little bit silly. Everybody knows who James Elroy is, or probably you wouldn't be here. And also, nobody who ends up published by Every Man's Library needs an introduction, do they? And uh, Mr. Elroy has now got three volumes in Everyman's Library as of this year. So. I'm going to just let James introduce this book that we'll be talking about tonight by saying a few words about it and then reading a passage from the very beginning, and then we'll have a chat.
3: Live radio broadcast. Father Charles Coglin, The Thunderbolt Hour, XERB Radio Los Angeles, bootleg transmitter, Tijuana, Mexico, Tuesday, December 30th, 1941. Good evening and bienvenidos. A belated Feliz Navidad and let's not forget Prospero Ano y Felizidad, which means Happy New Year in English and serves to introduce the Mexico at war theme of tonight's broadcast. And at war we are, my fellow American listeners, even though we sure as shooting didn't want to be in the first place. But let's talk Turkey here. Es la verdad, as our Mex cousins say. We have been in this Jew-inspired boondoggle a mere 23 days, and we've been forced to stand with the rape-happy Russian Reds against the more sincerely simpatico Nazis. That's a shattering shame, but our pawn president, Franklin Double Cross Rosenfeld, has deliriously decreed that we must fight Der Fuhrer. So, fight that heroic Hefe, we regretfully must. It's a ways off, though, because we've got our hands full with the
2: Japs
3: right now. So, Let's meander down Mexico way where the senoritas sizzle and the more hell-bent jefes hold sway. Mexico, it connotes proudly Catholic, does it not, friends? Add theocratic republic, anti-red and dutifully religious to that. It paints a picture, doesn't it? Yes, but the picture is wholly inaccurate and sorrowfully seditious, dating back to the tempestuous 20s and the repugnant red rain of Presidente Plutarco (laughs) Calles. Item. Calles instituted a six-year plan for economic and industrial reform modeled after Red Russia's five-year plan. Item! Kala set out to eradicate the influence of the Catholic Church, barred religious festivals and processions, and created workers' collectives to counter the alleged excesses of industrial capitalism and further secularize the Mexican body politic despite the stubborn opposition of the Catholic Mexican people. Item: Catholic bishops were forced to suspend public worship. Idum collus' red shirt goon squads shuttered churches across Mexico Item priests were murdered, nuns were raped, bishops sought South American asylum, and the Holy Mass was performed as a secret sacrament. (laughs) Idem, cancerous Collis was succeeded by limp leftist Lazaro Cardenas. He was a motley molly coddler of a less malicious sort. His anti-clerical policies bore a still-Stalinist but less overt stink. Priests were still murdered, nuns were still raped, provincial despots still shuttered churches and satanically forbade mass. Idom. These practices continue under current Presidente Manuela Villa Camacho, a purported centrist. read that as one mealy-mouthed muchacho. And this brings us to the Cristeros, the rip-snorting, righteous, Catholic resistance. The gold shirts, not the red shirts of the Collis Cardanius communist ilk. The armed home guard that fought fire with fire, killed red shirts, lynched communist commissars and apoplectic apparatchiks, and burned more than a few red reptiles alive. The Cristeros flourished under Callas, and were forced into hiding under Cardenas. In 37, they majestically metamorphosed into the Union Nacional Synarchista. Synarchism means without anarchy. Synarchismo represents a full-fledged assault on the anti-Catholic left. Underground, under mention, now in force, Presidente Camacho's atheistic agenda, the Synarchistas magnificently mount a Catholic counterattack. The Synarchistas are growing in number. They proselytize for a merged Catholic secular state. They've been called fascistas and Nazis, But that's all red, hoo-ha. Yes, they surely grew out of the Spanish phalange and generalissimo Francisco Franco's valiant victory in the Spanish Civil War. And now, with the United States embroiled in a consuming world conflict and with Mexico situated at our southernmost tip, Will the green shirt synarquistas serve our best interests as the emergent world power, both anti-Axis and nationalistically non-red? Item. Mexico has remained neutral in this world conflict so far. Item. Presidente Camacho closed the german consulate in august of 41 but has let a great many pro-axis krauts and japs linger down mexico way (laughs) enter baja california baja's that lurid lick of land south of our own san diego it's a hellish hotbed of fascisto-communisto intrigue. There's a great many resident Japs. The Mex State Police suspect the presence of a great many Jap submarine berths perched along Baja's Pacific coastline. There's talk of secret Jap air bases being readied for raids on U.S. naval installations and defense plants near Los Angeles. Enter, sinarchista boss man, Salvador Abascal. Señor Abascal, es muy católico. He's the sinarchista's spiritual and intellectual leader, and he wears sinarchista's green shirt proudly. Like most male adherents, To Sinarchismo, he wears a small SQ with a coiled snake attached, tattooed in the web of his right forefinger and thumb. He's a handsome man of 31, and Presidente Camacho seems to fear him. Item, the Sinarchista membership is growing in Mexico and the U.S., Item: Punk patriarch Camacho has granted them land for an encampment at Magdalena Bay in southern Baja. Is he isolating the anarchists, or is he readying them for some task? U.S. Army intelligence officers are mobilizing in Baja. They will sort out the political gestalt and round up Japs in a replication of our own Jap internment efforts. What is the upshot here? Will Mexico end its neutral stance and throw in with Uncle Sam? America is now alarmingly aligned with the repugnant Russian Reds and allied against the nefarious but very nifty Nazis. Will the Mexican peso and the U.S. dollar plummet, and will a new gold standard arise? What about those ripe rumors, Nazis and Ruskies melting gold bars into swastika and hammer and sickle artifacts? Mexico my American Hermanos and Christian countrymen. It's the southern gateway to our cherished shores. Will waterlogged wetbacks reach our borders and sap us with sabotage? Will the Senarchistas come to our aid as a heroic home guard? (laughs) Yeah! Good evening, peepers, prowlers, pederasts, pedants, panty sniffers, punks, and pimps. I'm James Elroy, the death dog with the hog log, the foul owl with the death growl, and the slick trick with the donkey dick. I am the author of 19 books, Masterpieces All. They precede all my future masterpieces. These books will leave you reamed, steamed, and dry-cleaned, tied, dyed, and swept to the side, screwed, blued, tattooed, and good. These are books for the whole fucking family. If the name of your family is the Manson family, if each and every one of you buy 1,000 copies of my new novel, This Storm, tonight. I you will be able to have unlimited sex with each and every person on this earth that you desire every night for the rest of your lives. (laughs) Guaranteed. Guaranteed. If each and every one of you buy 2,000 copies of this book tonight, you will be able to have unlimited sex with each and every person on this earth that you desire every night For the rest of your lives and still get into heaven as a result of a special dispensation (laughs) signed by me, the Reverend Elroy. If each and every one of you buy 3,000 copies of my new book tonight for the first time in its brief history, you get the sex, you get into heaven, and LARB, the LA review of books, will Rule the world. Yeah. You heard it here first off the record on the QT and very hush hush. Concludingly, T.S. Eliot wrote, if you came this way, starting from anywhere at any time in any season, it would always be the same. You would have to put off sense and notion. You are not here to instruct yourself or to inform curiosity or to carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been proven valid what better place to bow our heads and pray than in a place where the printed word is worship? on that note tom lots
2: i'm trying to shake off the feeling that i'm following that somehow (laughs) i have a bunch of questions i know you all have questions as well and i want to get to those as soon as we can a couple of my questions have math involved, but we'll we'll just deal with that. The piece that you read is a speech by Father Coughlin. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of voices in the book, in this book, this storm. And those voices are sometimes in the shape of diary entries. Kay Lake's diary, seen, we read some other diaries. There's sometimes other kinds of communiques. The characters speak, we hear their voices. Dudley, I wanna talk about Dudley's voice. It's a fantastic voice fantastic way of speaking that Dudley has. The narrative sections themselves have a style that you've become kind of famous for, these kind of very quick staccato sentences, very short staccato sentences. It moves from character to character as we have a close third narration. Those sentences, I started to think they're different somehow. And I went back and I counted. And here's the first piece of math. In Black Dahlia, the first hundred words of narration are five sentences. In American Tabloid, the first hundred words are 13 sentences. The first hundred words of this book are 25 sentences. Sentences are getting half as long in each of these three sequences. And so my first question is, are we at the end of that progression? Are they going to get shorter in the next book? No. Okay. Okay.
3: My short-sentence style has been expanded on incrementally in my last three novels, Blood's a Rover, Perfidia, and now This Storm. The text is enhanced because I wish to spotlight and give emphasis to the emotional and ideological lives of my protagonists. I can't dispute the math, Tom. Yeah. There's that. That's,
2: I'm just saying. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you, were you a math major? No, 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 in, no. In this is, this is yeah. a little bit out of character in Frank. Yeah. 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 But I started to think, I tried to explain it to myself. Tell me if this has if makes any sense to you. I thought there's something about it that gets at the way that we think. We have these kind of traditions in realist literature of representing the way people think and you know, the famous stream of consciousness. But yours is not a stream. It's like the crunchy gravel of consciousness. It's the kind of crunching gravel in the dark of consciousness. And somehow that is the way we think. We think in these splashes. We think of a name, the image of the person. And as we kind of move through these images quickly, which is what happens for a lot of your characters, Mm -hmm. right? They just think Joey, Susie, Billy, right? And that is representing thought in a way that's maybe less digestible immediately, but actually more mimetic.
3: I very carefully and deliberately apportion information in my books. There's direct narration, what an individual does. There is direct thought, what a person thinks. There is dialogue that's very much at odds with the overall sentence structure of the book because I vary dialogue according to my individuals. You're right about all of this. There are five protagonists to this book. Hideo Ishida, Elmer Jackson, Dudley Smith, Joan Conville, and Kay Lake. They all have different narrative voices, but only Kay writes in a first person diary style. All of everything in my books derives from the fact that I write enormously long and detailed outlines, and that is what allows me to live in the improvisational quality of the language. It exists because I understand going in that the plot structure, the character arc structure is inviolate, and I have that confidence as I go forth and write the individual scenes.
2: Improvisational is interesting, right? Because it does sound jazzy. It's inflected with a, almost a jazz idiom rhythmically. But I, I also kept getting struck by moments where there's a lot of tetrameter. There's a lot of trimeter. So here's one section from that right on the first You're page. You're absolutely
3: right right off the bat.
2: Yeah? Okay. Yeah,
3: everything is a triplet with me.
2: Elmer gargled old crow. He had the front house car. Tommy had the crib cased. Two-leggy sisters lived there. Those things are like trochaic, Mm -hmm. iambic, trochaic, iambic. Mm -hmm. Right, and then we go from the trimeter to tetrameter. Part-time squeeze of cheap Jack Harrell. It's what you know and who you blow. Call me Jack, set up the bait gig. Again, trochaic, iambic, trochaic. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that that's improvised itself, or do you go back and you think, I want to make that...
3: I want a persistently, consistently perfect language. To begin with, I love the American idiom. I love racial invective. I love alliteration. I love Yiddish. I love black, hepcat, jazz, patois. Mm -hmm. I love cop jive talk. And I love penal code abbreviations even if I'm not quite sure what criminal offenses the abbreviations designate.
2: That's not true, is it? You do, do, do. Yeah,
3: it's true. Is it? Yeah. I, I don't have a copy of the L.A. Penal Code at home at my desk. And I write by hand. I've never used the computer for anything. I'm computer illiterate. And I go at everything in my life very deliberately.
2: Let's talk about racial invective. There's a lot of it. The Father Cochran speech that you started yeah, with, of course, yeah, gets of some it, yeah. some Jews and some Mexicans and some right. Japs and right. right. Uh-huh. But then, well, then we go on. You're a very equal opportunity racial invective right. writer, yeah. right? Yeah. You get a little bit of everybody. There's a certain amount of glee you take from that. how do, no, you, how do you understand I, I that? I take
3: no glee in it. It's 1942. There are no rules of language from today. That I impose upon myself. If I occasionally, and it's only very occasionally, suffer a brickbat for the deployment of racial invective, it's because there is never hardcore racial invective expressed by my characters or true racial animus. The deployment of racial invective is casual. It's a casual attribute mm-hmm. to my cops. It's not a defining characteristic. Even Dudley Smith, who is a stone fascist, has only one close friend, a Japanese homosexual, mm-hmm. Hideo Ishida.
2: Right.
3: People, ideology is diffuse. Ideology is essentially egalitarian because it shifts individual to individual, not racial group to racial group or minority to minority. That's all part of the Elroy anecdotal race gestalt.
2: Mm. <laughs> yeah. There's also a kind of running analysis of what racial invective means that various characters think and Think out loud to themselves sometimes. There's a, this moment where you say, Elmer, one of your five protagonists, says, Wisharts, North Carolina, which is where he's from, is clan country. Right. Geography is destiny. Great line. Clan life fucked up his daddy and big brother that hate the jigs diet stuck in his craw, stuck in Elmer's craw. But in fact, geography was destiny for his daddy and his brother, but not for him. No. geography
3: became destiny for elmer jackson a real life noted and corrupt frankly vice cop of la's glorious past of the 1940s elmer took it on the lamb geographically joined the marine corps and backstopped puppet Führer somoza in nicaragua circa 1934. That's his geographic destiny, not the race-baiting destiny of dad and big brother, Wayne Frank.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation between Tom Lutz and James Elroy. Let's talk
2: about the real life characters. Mm -hmm. because he's one of them, right? I was just working on this historical drama based in the 1920s, and at one point I realized that some of these people that I'm writing about, their children might still be alive. Their grandchildren certainly Mm -hmm. would be alive. And so I can't just turn them into junkies. There are a lot of real people in here who are doing really nasty things, committing murder, for instance. Are all of the historical characters, crimes, actual crimes? Here's the
3: deal on this. I put no great store in absolute historical accuracy. It's got the big F for fiction on the spine there. And in order to create a pithy, a viable verisimilitude, it's the question I don't answer. What's real and what's not? Mm -hmm. I want you to be able to guess. There is a, a hidden twist right at the heart of writing real-life historical characters. Famous, famous men and women. Don't show them in previously established historical contexts. We know it, it stands as subtext. Better to show Jack Kennedy, bad back Jack, two-minute Jack, in my novel American Tabloid, in the kip with a hot-wired, FBI-planted call girl. In other words, yep. it's a benign megalomania, but I rewrite history to my own
2: specifications.
3: <laughs> but nobody gets hurt.
2: <laughs> okay, this, this is a massive project that yeah. this book is part of, yeah. right? It's, uh, it's um, 11, gonna be 11 volumes. Yeah. Uh, this, is, yeah. this is number nine. Yeah. It's going to weigh in at around 6,000 pages, yeah. roughly 2 million, yeah. two million words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a span of 30 years, right? 19, yeah! <laughs> 1941, 1972, roughly up 200 pages a year, a page for every workday.
3: Right. And I'm writing as years. fast as I can. <laughs> I had hair when I started.
2: How did this madness take hold of you?
3: When I was 7 and 8 years old, way back in 55 and 56, My parents, before they broke up, had a big closet at their pad. We lived on Alden Drive off of Doheny in West Hollywood here in LA. Big closet full of Life magazines. And I always had my little baby kid snout stuck in them. Looking at the pictures, reading the stories, government investigating committees, World War II, Spanish Civil War, the atom bomb the Cold War, government investigating committees, anti-communist investigating committees, momentous crimes, small crimes, swinging movie actresses jungled up with well-hung gigolos and shit like that. The, The two influences, great influences, of my youth, the Lutheran Church and Confidential Magazine, And the other various scandal rags. Mm. I was always reading. I was always fantasizing. I was always escaping into history and books. And I have been going batshit crazy for six decades Mm. now. And and started putting it to very good use when I started with The Black Dahlia, Mm. my seventh novel, writing historical fiction.
2: Right. And when you started that, you didn't have this whole... 11-volume thing in the back of your mind?
3: No, I did not. I wrote the L.A. Quartet, four books, the Black Day, the Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz. They cover the years 1946 to 1958. Set here in L.A., my smog-bound fatherland. After that, (laughs) I wrote the Underworld (laughs) USA Trilogy, three novels, American Tabloid, The Cold 6,000, Bloods of Rover, Set in a National Scale between 58 and 72. In 08, I was recently divorced and I was living in the Ravenswood apartments over here on Rossmore. and I was looking out one cold winter night, rainy night, looking out my southern bedroom window, wondering why I didn't have a girlfriend. I was on the A number one watch list for Alimony International, (laughs) and it came to me, I will write the second L.A. Quartet. I will take characters from the original L.A. Quartet and the Underworld USA Trilogy and place them in L.A. during World War II as significantly younger people. And I had a synaptic flash of forlorn-looking Japanese in the back of a U.S. Army transport bus being led through a snow-covered mountain pass to the Manzanar internment camp in the winter of 42. Mm -hmm. I've been at it ever since.
2: Mm -hmm. I want to get back to the Japanese internment, but the um, first Dudley Smith, who's obviously in both Mm -hmm. quartets, I I mentioned earlier, he has this elocution that's very specific. Where does that come from?
3: Comes from Ireland. Mm -hmm. He's an Irish immigrant. He was a schoolboy killer for the Irish Citizens' Army circa 1919, Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., the president's dad, brought him over and got him a job on the Los Angeles Police Department. He loves to read, he loves classical music, he's a big, handsome guy, he wears clothes well. He loves my favorite composers, Beethoven, Wagner, and Bruckner and he has developed the gift of gab. He's also an opium addict, a compulsive womanizer and a psychopathic killer, and oddly egalitarian in his likes. He is uncommonly generous to all manner of people and it makes him very, very dangerous and very, very seductive.
2: You mentioned earlier his, his relationship with Ashida. Yeah. Uh, somebody once said that one of the great things about the love triangles, the sexual triangles in your books is that they're all equilateral. And there's something about the triangles that he becomes part of, that Ashida becomes part of in, D- in Dudley's life, and something about the other triangles in his life that's different this time around. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say?
3: It's fair to say, yeah. yeah. How, how so? There's a triangle of... Hideo Ashida, who went to Belmont High, down the street here on Beverly Boulevard, and Bucky Bleichert, who he lusts for and has since boyhood. Now Ashida and Bucky are in their mid-twenties. Bucky Bleichert is a light heavyweight boxer who ultimately will become the narrator of my much earlier written but latter set book, The Black Dahlia set in 1947. He will marry Kay Lake, who's the heroine of these first two novels in the second L.A. quartet. But Dudley Smith enters Hideo Ashida's life and Dudley shifts his unrequited love for Bucky Bleichert to Dudley Smith. Thus, we've got our first troika.
2: Mm. And at one point, uh, Joan Colville, is sleeping with both Dudley Smith and Bill Parker, yeah. another real-life LAPD yep. guy. Bill tells her something about, something about a, a double cross that he has is, he is perpetrated that is going to help make him chief someday, right. he thinks, right? Yes. And she says, oh, go tell Dudley. Yeah. And he says, you've got a lot of nerve bringing him up because he's a, their rival yeah. in this triangle, right. uh, in that triangle. And, um, and, she, and then she says, oh, I'll tell Dudley. It's what you really want everything you do is about you and Dudley, so why should I deny you that joy?
3: Yeah, a right? non-sexual triangle, except at the points where John Conville is the apex, but Dudley Smith and William H. Parker, and William H. Parker is a very mixed bag in reality and in my fictional treatment of him, but he is in... No way evil. He is a man of very, very tormented conscience. And both men, Parker and Smith, are devout Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. And he is always playing a Dudley Smith hole card, even in this tortured, adulterous relationship with John Conville, who, why mince words, is based on another troika. The marvelous film and TV actresses of my youth, Lois Nettleton, long gone, Lois rest in peace, and still very much with us, Shirley Knight, Miss Knight, God bless you wherever you are, and the apex of the triangle, my mother, Jean Hilliker, a tall redhead like John Conville.
2: Mm-hmm. I guess what I was getting at with the um, with the uh, Go Tell Dudley um, passage is that I think that in some ways the, 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 this novel seems more aware of the way those triangles work uh, in complicated ways. You say it's, it's non-sexual but there's, there's a way in which the fulcrum or the, the uh, top point of the triangle becomes unimportant. The rivals are also lovers. The rivals are also are, are in, a, uh, in a bond that is stronger than their bond to this disputed love object.
3: It's very, very true. I love Troikas in language. I love Troikas in human relationships. And I have one great theme, and it is bad men in love with strong women. That's my great theme.
2: The background of the whole book is the war, Yeah. right? Yeah. And Kay Lake at the end says, early wartime L.A. was a time of great crimes and witheringly ambiguous solutions. The war is everybody has a, an ideology, the fascists, the anarchists, the, the, uh, the, the communists, the, right, every, everyone. Uh, but nobody cares about those ideologies quite as much as they care about the gold there are people that are religious and there are people that are anti-religious, but neither of those are as important as the gold. And the gold of course is the source in a way of more of the crime than the ideologies or yeah. even the yeah. war. Right. And so it, the, is that, is that about the chaos that war brings or is it just that the, the war because of the chaos it brings unleashes the fundamental human spirit and the fundamental human spirit is nasty, criminal, murderous, and, and, and horrible
3: opportunistic. This novel is my great tell-all of my profoundly deep-seated personal ambition, which is really only directed at writing great fiction. But I wasn't born until 1948, and 1941-42, America and LA, right here, right here, was profoundly libidinized and eroticized. LA was under imminent danger of Japanese sea and air attack. Let's live for now. When I read the initial research briefs on the month of the Pearl Harbor attack, there were a great many parties that were reported in the newspaper, presumably a great many unplanned pregnancies with a lot of kids expected in the early fall of 1942. People are hopped up, people are looking to get laid, make love, beat the Axis powers, beat the, the allied powers, and make out, and I understand all of these drives. And this book is, frankly, a, an ode to the hard-charging, shit-kicking World War II men and women who spawned yours truly in 1948, the year of the rat, in Chinese mm-hmm. astrology. There are some great lines from the humorist PJ O'Rourke talking about Americans. For example, we're three quarters grizzly bear and two thirds car wreck and descended from a stock market crash on our mother's side. (laughs) When we snort coke in Houston, people lose their hats and cap (laughs) d'antibes. A rape and a mugging is our way of saying cheerio. (laughs) Hell can't hold
2: our sock hops.
3: That's my America. That's the America I write about.
2: And yet this is, this novel, um, given all of that Mm -hmm. hellishness this novel has more tenderness, I feel, than anything that you've written before.
3: Ushida Smith, Parker, John Conville, Kay Lake, Elmer Jackson. Deep, 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 deeply tender souls, whatever their flaws. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and to, this, is, this is not an accident. Why an, an increase of tenderness at this point in your career?
3: I'm a Christian. And all my books, for the characters that I am most personally driven by and drawn to create, all these people, men, women, all of them, have a significant shot at redemption. Often a heavily compromised redemption, often a tragic one, but they're up for it. And more than a few of them actually grasp it. They grasp for personal honor and transcend.
2: I want to to take your questions now as well. Kate Lake, towards the end, says, My hot date with history continues. And uh, obviously yours will for two more volumes of this, right? Yeah. Yeah. We have our first
3: question. Rex. Hey. It's W.H. Auden's voice, although the title is mine, and I cribbed it onto a letter that Auden wrote to his friend, Christopher Isherwood, that I saw in a book, and I interpolated incorrectly. I thought it was one of Auden's jazzy, vulgarized, anti-war poems but the simple words are this something or other not necessarily storm and I had that wrong but then the words this savaging disaster and hence I came up with the words this storm and then I saw it on the cover of a compact disc by a female vocalist uh, I don't know, shit's out there in the Spiritus Mundi. And that's just the way it is. So there's Auden's voice, and there is the voice of the spoken voice of the great conductor and composer, Otto Klemperer, who lived out here befriending refugees from Nazi Germany in Brentwood in the 30s and 40s. God bless him. He lived to be almost 90 years of age, and we've also got the voice of the great Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich, who, during the early time frame of this book, was composing his monumental Leningrad Symphony. You're welcome.
2: And the and the Auden poem is about the war, right? Is it, is about
3: not? War? It's not actually. It's no? some hoo-ha that I've never figured out because there's vulgar <laughs> Auden. And then there's the highbrow, highfalutinodin, who knows all about uh, the Greek gods and mythology and everything else and stuff that I know absolutely shit about.
2: <laughs> yeah, John.
3: Hey, John. I never, John, I got to tell you, I forgot to do the disclaimer. I don't talk about President Trump, America today. To me, it's nothing but a jerk off. And again, no, hold on, John. Whoa, whoa, brother. Hold on, I should have done the disclaimer, right? There's one thing I don't want to hear ever again in the next 71 years of my life. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Eh, That's, uh, I don't think about today. I don't give a shit about today. As far as I'm concerned, today doesn't exist. It's 1942. Whatever power my books possess, is a result of my utterly single-minded denial of the contemporary and my embrace of the past. In fact, I have a rebuttal here to this line of questioning. I'm not taking it out on you, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And since I don't have a computer, don't type. Here you go. Yeah. I researched this and I wrote it out by hand. This is the great, great Canadian pianist Glenn Gould writing about the great Austrian composer Richard Strauss. Dig this. If you take nothing else out of here, go buy some Gould, go buy some Klemperer, and go buy some Richard Strauss. The greatest artists like Bach walked against the zeitgeist, operated outside the pressures of the artistic mainstream to conform to the trends and aesthetic fashions of their time. These artists felt neither constrained by history nor determined by the present. The great thing about the music of Richard Strauss is that it presents to us an example of the man who makes richer his own time for not being of it, who speaks for all generations by being of none. It is an ultimate argument for individuality, an argument that a man can create his own synthesis of time without being bound by the conformities that time imposes. Glenn Gould, 1962. Yeah! Thank you so much. You're welcome. Next question. No, I don't listen to audiobooks, and I'm glad for sight impaired people that they can get the audiobooks. I have read the abridged versions of my book, My Dark Places, and the unabridged, it's a memoir, and there's no dialogue in it. Also, the unabridged version of my companion memoir, The Hilliker Curse. That's because there's no dialogue in it. It's the differentiation of voices that always gets my goat. No writer, no professional reader can differentiate hundreds of voices. Gender, age, race, all of it. You simply can't do it. It all sounds hokey to me. Fine actor Craig Wasson has read the last four books. I've listened to a little bit of it. He does a damn good job. But as good as Mr. Wasson is, he can't differentiate that many voices. It would be a combination of two real-life Los Angeles police department men, the corrupt vice cop, Elmer Jackson, and William H. Parker, the illustrious chief of the LAPD from 1950 to 1966, seen earlier in his lifetime in the last two books. Now, nobody would have published it way back then, and nobody would have come up with the central themes. And I've evolved from some very fine writers, and I come at this period of American history and come from this hometown. And I'm very much not of the World War II generation, but of a different generation, a younger generation of American writer. So you're absolutely right.
2: If that's one, if that, Should we take one more?
3: One more, and then I was going to ask the people if they would ask me a question. But I'd love to take one more question from the people here Yeah. Yeah, woman in the back. Nancy. I hire researchers who compile fact sheets and chronologies to my exact specifications so that I won't write myself into egregious factual error. What I'm looking for more than anything else is a paucity of factual information which will permit me latitude to fictionalize. A very good example of this is the early reporting of the grave injustice of the Japanese internment, which is at the heart of my preceding novel, *Perfidia* and this book here, This Storm. Muddled reportage, contradictory, ambiguous, I saw that I had a great deal of wiggle room to make it up. That's what I'm looking for. Would anybody, or this audience here, and God bless you, thank you for coming. Would anybody like to ask me, why do you write? Why do you write? Uh, full, full voice, please. Why do you write? In my craft or sullen art, <laughs> exercised in the still night, When only the moon rages and the lovers lie abed with all their griefs in their arms, I labor by singing light, not for the strut and trade of charms upon the ivory stages, but for the common wages of their most secret heart. Not for the proud man apart do I write on these spindrift pages, but for the lovers, their arms round the griefs of the ages who pay, No praise or wages, nor heed my craft or art. Dylan Thomas. Thank you, everybody. (laughs) Brother. Fucking great. You were great. Yeah.
0: You've been listening to a conversation between Tom Lutz and James Elroy, author of This Storm. Thanks for listening.
3: You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer
1: Imogen Teasley.